Hello and welcome to Whose Song Is It Anyway? My name is Dr Hayley Rocher. I'm a senior lecturer in intellectual property law at Brunel University London. And I recently wrote a book called Copyright in the Music Industry, which was the inspiration for this podcast where Jules and I chat to people from the music industry about music rights. My name is uh, Jules O'Riordan, aka Judge Jules in my uh, kind of artistic capacity, definitely not in my legal capacity. I'm not a judge that sits with a wig and uh, a gavel. I'm an active specialist music lawyer at a boutique practice called Sound Advice based in Tarliard in London. I'm a partner there. I've also done 5,000 gigs, been an A&R for a high level for major record labels, been a manager, been various other things. So seeing things from a fairly holistic perspective, dare we say it. Um, my name is Christian Sedell. I'm the founder of a company called Red and Bear Music Group Limited, which is a company with uh, three facets to it. One is a music supervision service uh, called Sync Music, which is, acts like a bolt-on music department to production companies, TV companies, licensees of music. And I also jointly run a musicology service called Chandler and Sedell Musicologists, which I founded in 2013 with my musicology partner, Ivan Chandler. So, first and foremost, what is a musicologist? Musicology is essentially the study of music. A musicologist in our context is somebody who provides musical expertise in analysing music for potentially non-contentious matters, but usually um, in cases of infringement where there may be a dispute and two parties need to have some kind of independent um, opinion and analysis of music to search for evidence within within music that might support or refute an argument. Now a musicologist comes up a lot in my legal practice and when I explain to artists and people involved in the music business in general where and on, under what circumstances they will require a musicologist I say it's kind of twofold. One is a sort of preemptive strike and one is when dealing with litigation. So the preemptive strike model is I want to create a, a sound like that isn't infringing. That alone, we could have a whole podcast on uh, just that sentence. It's an infringing statement. (laughs) And role number two is to basically be an expert witness who is either available to to appear as an expert witness in court or would certainly be there if um, proceedings ever reached court. Um, Does that reasonably sort of sum up your, what one does as a musicologist? Yes, uh, in a way, yes. So we, yeah, we, we've developed ways of working with, um, Sometimes it's with composers who uh, are producing music for, for production, it might be an advert for a TV production um, series, and um, it may be that they've, they're required perhaps to do some kind of due diligence, or if they've been given audio references, which is, you know, when you start getting audio references, it's automatically on slightly shaky ground. I mean, I've had it in experience, and it's interesting coming from it from a, a music supervisor who's worked with clients producing music and also musicologists working on um, the side of infringement disputes and some of which have been music produced for productions and not just commercially released music. It's interesting seeing the kind of requests that composers can be asked and I've seen briefs sent to composers saying we can't afford to pay for this piece of music so we would like to make our own version of it and uh, we've had inquiries that ourselves going and we just go stop wait a minute, let's just clarify from the beginning what it is you are, what you, what it is you've just said here. So 
Um, but yeah, we provide uh, what we call as a kind of a copyright compliance um, report, which is a short form report when a, a producer of music maybe uh, wants us to do diligence as part of their deliveries or, or if um, they, you know, they, they have concerns that they've been inspired by something. Um, but what we're absolutely clear from the outset when we get those kind of inquiries is that what we do not do is sit down and facilitate um, getting as close to a piece of music that they don't want that they don't want to pay for or have been told they can't use um, because we see that as massively unethical and just incredibly bad practice and not something we want to be known for doing. We've also known from rights holders of very famous pieces of music that they see the other side of that. So they, they see where they hear something similar to their most, you know, their highest value and most famous works. And they know that it's being facilitated by, by musicologists being engaged to let's get as close as we can and, and, and kind of do those sort of bad practices. So we don't want to be known by that by reputation either because uh, we work for music rights owners as well as music creators. So the corollary of, of that question, I suppose, is do you need to, because the, uh, and Haley is the, uh, the esteemed uh, law, legal academic here, so perhaps I should be um, deferring to her greater wisdom, but do you feel that your opinions are capable of making law and shifting the goalposts vis-a-vis -vis what represents an infringing musical work? Not making law, I mean, first and foremost, we're not lawyers, so we're not experts in the law, but we know within a piece of music we can identify through analysing it, what makes it identifiable, what's the valuable aspects of it, what are the elements of that composition that are likely to be synonymous with that composition through their originality or through their role within the composition, and what are the aspects of that composition that are valuable in the sense that it's, it's an element by which that composition would be referred to or recalled or recognised. And a lot of the time, and we put this to clients a lot of the time, <laughs> If something is worth copying, then it, there's an implicit recognition there that it has value. But so we're we're working within within music specifically and trying to keep the distinctions very clear between what we do as musicologists and uh, and what lawyers or presumably that if you accept my sort of uh, description of your two principal roles, i.e., yeah. looking at works and helping to create things that are in that zone, let's say, versus providing a report that might go to court surely mm. the former of those does involve some degree of knowledge of the law yes and but it also it depends on the nature of the request so I've, I've outlined one area where like, one type of request that we will refute we're not going to get into kind of quasi producing someone comes to us and goes go we've got this piece of music and this piece of music and we're concerned that this one sounds like this one can you give us a view and we will say We've analysed your we've assessed your concerns. We've analysed music, and we don't find there to be anything concerned. Or we'll say yes, we do find something concerned. You know, we might highlight the parts in that composition. What we won't do is go. So if you change that to that and that to that, <laughs> and sort of become a co-composer of a piece of music. But there's another type of work that we'll do for non-contentious work, which is so simply a producer of a series might they might be filming, for example, a um, uh, a band and. The band may have said to them, well, we're, you know, we're performing public domain works and, and they may come to us for more broad guidance on whether the works that are being produced are public domain, whether they fall within the domain of copyright or are public domain. Um, 
and whether they are arrangements, for example, and a contributor to a, to a documentary, for example, might consider that what they're doing is performing out copyright works, not even realising that they themselves have arranged them and that there is a copyright in that. So it's kind of a due diligence. Yeah, I mean, maybe I should explain the context of that to our, to our listeners. That a work, i.e. A, a song, could be out of copyright by virtue of the passage of sufficient time for it to be becoming the public domain. Mm-hmm. However, a reinterpretation, let's call it an arrangement because that's what it's described in a legal sense, of that work could carry with it a brand new copyright, if that makes sense. Now, that's quite a... Uh, Hayley, you, you can step in and tell me where... Uh, where the line is drawn you know if I take a piece of Beethoven and I add some uh, some pizzicato plucks here and a kind of kettle drum there that weren't in the original score at what point have I created a new arrangement thereby giving myself a separate copyright that I can go away and register and potentially earn money out of and to to what extent is that just the original um, public domain work? Well exactly and there is a case where this exact thing happened. So there was out of date, it was classical work. And Hyperion so the, and Sorkins, was it Sorkins and Hyperion? Yes, it was the Sorkins yes. case. Yes. So yes. glad you're here. Why? <laughs> we should just ask you. Um, where, so they hire, and he's the guy is an expert in this artist, right? To contribute to the arrangement to make a new version of it in the style of the old version. And then they have a fight about joint authorship of the work because the composer who contributed to the work claimed copyright in the work. Yeah, he was he was an expert in this particular composer and 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 this composer's work. It's like the leading authority, and he had produced arrangements uh, and and actually had to contribute beyond editorial. Had to add in parts using his ex you know his expert specialist knowledge. Had to contribute uh, parts, orchestrate it, etc. Really. It wasn't just sweat of the brow type of stuff, but it was, he did create aspects of the work, which when the work was then recorded without his permission and he claimed for infringement, they said, well, you, you, all you did was just, you know, add in a few bits, but actually he had contributed original material to that. So he cre- his arrangement was recognized as uh, protectable in, in copyright. Yeah, so not only was it a new original copyright work, but also there was an extra creator, which then gives it a lot longer um, protection because then, it will be 70 years after the death of that creator for that. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. To put it into a practical context, actually, when this sort of thing happens, normally speaking, there is a contract in the contract. It tells the person creating the new work that they can't go away and register a separate right to that work. Before those of you out there who are budding musicians want to take, I don't know, Mozart and create something that's sort of... uh, Orientated. Well, you probably could do it in Mozart, actually, but it's if you actually wanted to create a new work out of a, a work that is still in copyright as opposed to one that's out of copyright. And also you would assume that when you hire someone to contribute to your... Because they were making a collection in particular in that case, they should have had a contract with the composer that set out who owns what and what the outcome of the creation should be. I don't remember the, the particulars of that case, whether there was a contract in place, but what's interesting about your question, Jules, is about where's the line? When are you actually contributing enough to recreate a new work? And there's like a range of cases where we've seen things like, well, you could never really draw a line. Obviously it's all based on case by case basis, but some cases where judges have said things like, adding a drum beat is not enough, but then doing a guitar solo is enough. Depends on so many things, like what that contribution adds to the song and whether yeah, that it's, part... It's, 
it's qualitative as well as yeah. quantitative. So, yeah. So if it, well, it goes back to what I was saying slightly earlier, whereas, you know, if your contribution is the aspect that is compositionally valuable in musical terms, um, that equates in, in commercial music, you know, it's, it would naturally follow that equates in, in monetary terms. That's the value the aspect by which, you know, the hook, um, the aspect by which a piece of music can be recalled or identified, you know, so maybe the, the opening few bars of a piece of music are relatively forgettable, but the piece, but the motif or the or the or the melody that repeats or the lyric that repeats and comes back, and when you say name of the song, that's the bit that people identify it by or you know sing back to you, etc. Those bits are yeah valuable. The original parts, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I think one of the reasons, dare I say, we've done many episodes of this podcast, and one of the reasons it works well and has been well received is because you've got Hayley, who is an academic, and you've got uh, me, I'm a practicing lawyer, and you, you, one views the law from a slightly different perspective. I, uh, the reason I don't know all the cases is because I kind of, I'm applying the law, and I, I, I know what the court cases kind of create and the law, yeah. the legal position, without necessarily being able to recite the cases. And so, so if you don't mind, going back to um, an application of what you do now, strategy if somebody comes to you um, and if another lawyer writes a letter to you when you're in legal practice music legal practice and says your client is infringing my song my first reaction and the reaction of all lawyers is pretty simple go away and prove it to me I you know I didn't either deny outright or go away and prove it to me which mm. really leads us on to your other role now mm. what one would do in my experience if you want to be absolutely certain is to kind of call a musicologist, get a verbal opinion to make sure that your client is not putting good money after bad. And then provided you, that the musicologist gives a sort of informal opinion, you then commission a formal report, which mm -hmm. is the, if you like, the basis of your rebuttal of the position that somebody is slinging mud at you. So when you write these reports, and, and obviously that's a really, it's probably the role that musicologists are best known for, to what extent, I mean, clearly a lot of it's going to be a sort of an A to B comparison between inf purported infringing work and the original work. Mm -hmm. How much of it is science and how much of it is kind of intuition and relying on your, your reputation within your field? We begin every matter that comes to us with, from a point of first principles, even if someone has said, oh, well, so-and-so has given a view and here's some previous documentation. We'll go, OK, well, that's interesting to know about and read and put that over there. We wouldn't necessarily rely on our, we must have a reputation, but we don't, don't necessarily try and prove, prove or win a, an argument on that. And, and actually, our agenda isn't to set out arguments and try and win arguments now like I say we're not lawyers we don't we don't work to preconceived um, conclusions or predetermined outcomes so we'll approach it we'll, we'll have the information that's been given to whatever information we've been privy to where we've been engaged right? this is the concern usually one of three things happens so someone will go well, here's you know here are the songs and, and you'll listen to it and instantly just say no there's, there's you know there's absolutely nothing here and here are the reasons why and everyone goes away Actually, it sounds like you might be disappointed someone, but mostly you know, people go away happy because no one's wasting their time and getting upset about something that was never a concern. Sometimes we may listen to, because you have to listen to it in order to suggest what is the, be the next best step to give a recommendation. So it may be the case that we listen to something and we go, yeah, we can hear why this person is concerned. We can hear what the concerns are here. And actually the concerns are such that we don't need to go into this tentatively. 
we need to go in if they want to pursue this then we should go in and do a fully comprehensive report with transcription analysis and you know break it all down and, and actually on some cases to give a qualitative and quantitative assessment at the end and try to come to a percentage value so some things it's not always that way but some things are are that clear that I'm thinking of one case in particular where it was that clear from, from the outset and it involved musical work and literary work other cases are well we can hear what you can hear why you're concerned but we can't necessarily assess the extent of this until we actually do an analysis that the work is necessary it's not just a document it's not just you listen to something and go all right well this is our opinion now let's write a report that documents that it's we listen to it and go okay this needs analysis this needs looking at and considering and it needs dissecting each piece needs dissecting independently and in relation to each other and it will not be until we until we reach our conclusion that we form a conclusion and it will be led by the evidence that we found through the process of the analysis which is invariably through transcription if the concern isn't that a recording was sampled if it is composition it, what I'm going to ask is going to sound, sound like a facetious question, but it's because um, you know, I've got a long background in the music industry. I've been a DJ for a very long time and I'm a lawyer. So I'll get clients who'll send me two YouTube links and they'll say, you know, here's somebody else's record. Here's mine. You've been doing this for a long time. Give me an opinion. And, and I try to explain to them it doesn't matter. None of that really counts. Or none of my experience really, really counts as far as having an opinion that would stand up in court. So um, I guess, which leads to the question, what uh, kind of qualifications, if there is a standard sort of career path for a musicologist, and, it's, and it needs to be said, there aren't many musicologists out there. How did you get into the position you're in? Well, so well, my path into this was, I mean, <laughs> going back to the very beginning, I've got a background in musicianship. I, mean, I started playing the piano when I was about three years old, played four or five instruments through education. I was one of those kids at school, I mean, age eight or nine, I... When our music teacher left school, they used to play the piano at assembly. They gave me the job of playing the piano at assembly for everyone to sing along. But so I was one of those kids that was, you know, played a lot of instruments. English, music and art were my subjects. And it was known when I was in first year of primary school that my A-levels would be music, English and art. And they were. And we knew that I would go to university and study music, which I did. Those are the things I found really easy. The things I found really difficult is I'm actually dyslexic in in, but more in relation to maths and so I had on the one hand in my education I had these things that I was found completely naturally good at and and then coupled with them you know on the flip side of that things that were utterly traumatizing but I did a music degree and it was a very deliberate choice to go to university and not to a music college because I didn't want to do something that was practical based I've done so much practical musicianship throughout my entire education I went to Cardiff University, did a music degree, and the way that the, the course was put together then was analysis was this double module that I couldn't avoid in year one, two, three, through no real choice or desire of my own. I had to continue to do it. By the time it got to the third year, it had become so abstract that it kind of appealed to my dyslexic and alternative way of approaching things. And it, it ended up being the thing that I was getting the highest marks in. So anyway, it's my only aim as I came out of the university was, well, I... I'd been to a two-hour careers talk. Throughout the course of that, I'd suddenly decided, well, I don't want to work at a record label. I want to work in publishing. Publishing is the place to work. So after uni, I set my mind to getting a job in publishing. And I didn't really know what publishers did. But I thought, well, none of this sounds exciting except media. That sounds like an exciting word. So I looked for media in publishing. So that was what I set my mind to. Got a copy of the Music Week directory, opened it. And I lived in a town called Camberley. And I 
and I went from W1 and just started working my way back towards Cambly. And I've been at that for about six months without much success, other than the occasional nice letter coming back. And then one day my dad just came home and he opened up the yellow pages. And he just said, look, um, he said, boss, why haven't you looked at, um, why don't you just look more locally? He goes, look, here's the yellow pages. And I was just like, no, no, no you've got to look in the music directory. He opened up the music, he opened up the yellow pages. He goes, well, there's, there's three music publishers here. And one's in Guildford, one's in Windlesham and one somewhere else. He goes, just like, I'm going, I phoned them. And uh, I think I phoned the first one and got an answer phone. The second one was that was, you know, wasn't, um, was, I think the line was actually not even functioning. And the third one, I bottled it. and thought, I'll just write him a letter. And the third one was the guy in Windersham and his name's Ivan Chandler. And I wrote to him and sent my CV. And in it, I said, you know, my, I did it. All, the only thing I had to put in there was my degree and a workshop I think I'd done on HMS president after university on Thames. And it just said, I, you know, I just highlighted, I did a lot of analysis when I was at uni. And uh, he happened to be working as a musicologist on the case Young at Heart, which is uh, Beckenham and Hodgins. Anyway, he, he got me in to read those case files. And he said, you've done a lot of analysis for uni. So here's a, here's a file, here's another file, as in big ring binders. So he said, sit there, read everything, read all the statements, read all the documents, and just write a report. Um, so that was, a, that was the first case I, I worked on. And I didn't, I didn't know it was a thing. I, and as I sat there, I kind of thought, this is, this is insane. It's the thing that I least wanted to do at uni. <laughs> Um, in, in my course, the one I, thing I tried to avoid was the very first thing that produced me my first ever paycheck in the music industry. And it was a case that went on to be actually quite an influential case in, in the context of what was being, you know, what was being disputed at the time. So, so you really didn't point. have many kind of stepping stones in between kind of graduation and being a musicologist. No, there wasn't. There was just, you know, yeah, you, you've studied music academically. You've done a lot of analysis, but I would say, the, you know, the, the analysis techniques that I picked up did set a foundation for the, you know, the way that I approach um, uh, assessing what's valuable within a melody, if you like, where, what are the, this is crass way to put it, but what are the important notes? <laughs> and also, I remember distinctly on that particular case, having the witness statements laid out and, and being able to make an assessment of almost authentication of, you know, well, if this guy is saying that he wrote that, I'd expect him to say this, this, and this, but also not, not necessarily even what was in the witness statement as compared with looking at the music, but also what was not in the witness statements, if you know what I mean. So, you know, if I had written this violin part, how would I approach it? What other aspects would have influenced me? So it was looking for those things which, that come across as authentic and reasonable. I mean, I, I've seen musicologist reports in my, in my legal practice clearly, and interestingly, when the, when the Blurred Lines case happened, which was the musicologists industry's big payday, but big nightmare in equal measures. Payday mm. because there was a huge amount of expert evidence, including some British musicologists, but nightmare because it was ultimately, ultimately decided by jury. Copyright is a federal issue in the United States and is decided mm. by jury as opposed to in the United Kingdom, where it's generally decided by the specialist intellectual property court. What interested me when I when I saw the reports was the scientific nature, the almost mathematical nature that you said scared you when you were when you were a relatively young kid. Yeah. Um, comparing kind of time signatures, uh, and I, and I guess the actual the rhythm and the time signatures are part of the uh, the potentially infringed element of the original work as well as the notes themselves. 
I'm trying to dumb dumb it down a little bit for the sake of probably. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, because I mean, not to move away from blurred lines, but inquiries that we'll get, you know, we get inquiries from someone and say, I know, I think this song is infringed by song. And, you know, the chords are the same, the chords are the same. And you have to say, well, you know, actually, you can't necessarily protect a chord sequence or a chord progression. The chords may be the same, but the chords are the same in hundreds, if not thousands, of commercial, you know, pieces of music. So, but it comes into the question of originality. and. I'm slightly on the fence on the blurred lines thing because I think a lot of the opinions that were, I understand in, in this country, there was a lot of scorn over the initial outcome. I also have a slight issue with juries deciding infringement cases. Actually, I find, you know, in the exposure that I have had to judges in this country, that they, they're more than lay people when it comes to music. They're not, lay, they're not music, musicians or music, musical experts, but, they, but they're not completely lost to music. And... And I've also been in awe of, um, you know, of a, of a barrister who will say he's, he's tone deaf and sat down and yet has grasped um, not even basic music theory, but kind of GCSE level music theory throughout the course of a meeting and then applied that to a case. So juries, I don't think really have a place in deciding infringement cases, but, I, but, but judges, I think, are, are well informed enough to do so. So the, the science of it, um, there is a kind of there is a forensic aspect to it, and you are breaking pieces of music down, and especially when you've got when you're transcribing music and putting two transcriptions next to each other. It shouldn't be about smoke and mirrors. It shouldn't be about you know, overcomplicating. It should be about reducing it down and simplifying it, and walking through people through a rationale and a logic which is objective and honest. Actually, you could use it in. So, for example, there are different ways to analyze a chord progression. And depending on which key you're in and the inversions of the chords and, and actually because chords, basic chord is a triad, but in a piece of music, you might have a number of pitches that are not part of that basic triad. And therefore you may end up with a load of notes playing at the same time as a chord. And there may be different ways to then annotate that. So chord one can be substituted by chord six, for example. And there are different ways of analyzing music. And if you're, if you're setting out to win an argument, if you're setting out as an expert witness to meet a predetermined outcome because you've set your conclusions before you've actually analyzed the music, then you could treat aspects of analysis like statistics and use and manipulate them to suit you. And I've seen that happen on cases where we've worked and we've been sent at the other side of engaging musicology and it's come back. And there's a lot of very complicated paragraphs and paragraphs, very complicated, you know, confusing, language around around core progression analysis and you know really have really sort of hamming up particular points which actually were not complicated at all and although it's not for us to get <laughs> emotional about these things there are times where you know we've seen that and you think this person is knowingly setting out to do the whole misleading statistics thing which is which is infuriating what we try to do is we set down a basic process we we take ourselves through an analytical journey and at the end of it, give our conclusions and our findings and also draw any advisories as well. For example, considerations, if we haven't been instructed to consider prior art, we'll say, you should also explore prior art. For example, it's not just this work compared to this work. You know, we need to look at not, you know, prior art, not just um, um, in the context of originality, but, but walk people through a rationale um, which arrives at a fair and right outcome. It's true that there are more, there is more than one way you know, you could argue a particular matter for one side or the other, 
Um, and there may be basis in, in a fact in, in both of those arguments, but actually there will, there will be a, a side of the argument that is majority one way or the other. And that's what we're trying to get at. And that's part of the reason why there's two of us. It's part of the reason why we provide a joint service is that we're not just one person, you know, sitting there getting himself worked up and trying to be not judge and jury in this country. But, you know, we shouldn't be determining whether a case is in one way or the other anyway. You should be looking for evidence. You should be analysing a concern, looking for um, evidence that, uh, that either supports or refutes those arguments, considering that in a broader context and then laying it out simply. It shouldn't be confusing and over-scientific and, um, uh, you know, it should, it should actually be very straightforward. And so that's what we try to do and just... Which, is, I mean, it's very interesting hearing this because I, I guess, Hayley... The flow chart of copyright infringement is quite a basic one, really, isn't it? And I'm sure, uh, I mean, I probably shouldn't be putting words into your mouth, but I'm guessing when you teach copyright, one of the first, once you sort of explain the basics, then you explain the flow chart. You know, is something capable of protection? Is a, is a, you know, the extent to the extent of the infringement, et cetera, et cetera. I and mean, I won't go back to real basics. Yeah. Is it music? Is it protectable? You sort of applying it on, on a very practical level because it's all very well saying, you know, does do all these various sort of stages of the of the, the relatively straightforward test apply? Tick 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 tick. But who is to say whether the ticks can actually put put in the boxes other than somebody like you? It's such a good point because, like, when you're explaining how you your like kind of methodology, exactly like what Jules is saying, I'm thinking of how I would put that in context of my flowchart. Is a really good way of explaining it. But it's usually a circle when I'm explaining it to the students because the infringement comes back to the originality, which is the thing that gives it the copyright in the first place. Mm. In your story, you said you did the analysis at uni and then you became a musicologist. And what I'm trying to work out is like, because you obviously work to brief and you're saying that you're independent and you don't, when you work to brief, it means like consider these two songs yeah. rather than help us prove this is or isn't an infringement. Yeah. But what is the question that you have in your mind when you're doing your analysis? Because are you asking yourself, did this person A copy person B? Or are you asking, is this copyright infringement? Because this is a different question. Okay, so my, my first response to that is, what we have to check ourselves all the time, check that we don't fall into this pitfall, is that we, we never go, so in conclusion, work B inf is infringing work A, for example. We would never do that because that's not our role. That's, that's, for, that's for a judge. That's the judgment and that's for a judge to, you know, to provide. What we may conclude is, you know, on the concern put to us, we find that there isn't sufficient evidence to support a potential claim of infringement or there is sufficient evidence to support a potential claim of infringement. That makes sense. So what I'm wondering is because you mentioned that you're not a lawyer and obviously you've got the musical background, which is the point you bring the musical expertise, obviously. Yeah. And I could totally see what you're saying when you're explaining about like the different chords and how when yeah. you said about the violin part. But surely you must have had some copyright education, because how would you know to say whether something was infringement right. or not? Right. I would say in the in the early days, going back now, nearly 20 years when I was providing advice report, the, the law firm that was, essentially it's interesting because you're engaged by the lawyers of a particular side. Um, and on the basis of the, of the responses that you give them, they will decide whether or not to progress with a case. So you have to be careful not to want to fulfill an expectation or you know, not, want, not to want to please your client, for example. You have to be, remain honest. In the early days, it was a case of 
the, uh, the lawyers briefing us saying these are the specific concerns, they didn't need a legal opinion. They had, they had the legalities, that side of things covered. They needed musical evidence. So they, had a, they may have had an argument they were, they were building and it would be a case of, can you explore this particular, this particular argument? I mean, I came to Young at Heart late in the day so I, there were musicology, musicological reports, and it was the argument over substantial. And actually, on that particular case, it was about was the violin part the hook, or was the vocal line in the chorus the hook? And that's a musical argument. And the other side were arguing that actually it wasn't a hook, even if he had, even if he had it. The legalities of that were: did he write it? That was that was a witness statement aspect for the for the judge to decide. But the musical aspect of it was, you know, can you consider is this violin part in the context of this piece of music? substantial and significant and can you tell us why in musical terms as my career has progressed obviously i've become much more knowledgeable about through publishing and through music supervision and licensing and then progressively on through musicology which i didn't initially pr proceed with so we uh, um can you tell us what happened in in that case uh yeah sure so what had happened was a session musician called bobby valentino had been hired to lay down a, a fiddle part for the song Young at Heart, which was being re-recorded by the original authors. Um, it originally existed as a uh, late 80s sort of electro kind of synth pop song. In the early 90s, there's this whole trend of indie folk and it was being re-recorded and they were quite a way through the recording, as I remember, and they booked this session musician to come in to lay down a fiddle part. And they hadn't actually written a fiddle part before it arrived. Um, I'm sorry for the academics of referring to the violin as a, as a fiddle, but, <laughs> but I'm doing it in the context of folk music. So. Uh, so anyway, he turned up expecting to just, you know, lay down a part that he was, would be told what to play. Um, but actually, as it turned out, they had this gap on the track and the, on the spot, he sort of, you know, was like, well, how about this kind of thing? And they were like, well, you know, what about this and this? And the, and the, and the music, the witness statements were quite clear on that, uh, that, that they had tried different things together in the room, um, but predominantly that it was Bobby Valentino, the session musician that had, that, that had written that part. When the song was released, it didn't really chart very high. I think it was in the top 30s until an ad agency licensed it for a Volkswagen GTI ad, which was the just divorced ad in the mid nineties. <clears throat> and that ad was really popular. And the song off the back of that advert became also very popular and was re-released. And I think it was in the top 10 after that. And actually, even in the witness statements, it was quite interesting, you know, because there's witness statements saying, well, the, the, the session musician kept being given an assurance that he would be given a writer's share and the song's doing really well. And there he was about to go on top of the pops and he's still going, well, I still haven't got my writer's share. When am I going to get my writer's share? And they go, yeah, we'll sort it out, we'll sort it out. And it never happened. And so in the end, he started proceedings against them. Um, and he was suing for joint authorship. And it's really, like, we do an unscientific test when you say the song Young at Heart to people, they either sing the vocal chorus line or they go, oh yeah, that da 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 uh, Yeah, so our role in that was to uh, provide musicological expertise. Ivan was the musicologist for, uh, for Bobby Valentino's for the, you know, for the claimant. I was providing advisory reports to Ivan. It went to court and it was found in his, in, in his favor. And it was agreed that there were two hooks in the song. But what it, what it also, in um, was influential was that there, in terms of works of joint authorship, that there doesn't need to be intent. You don't have to set out to intend to create a work of joint authorship in order to have done it. Um, and that's actually, it was exactly what happened. I mean, I sometimes I, because I came into being a lawyer, 
later in life, I, I tend to sort of explain things arguably somewhat differently to my clients than lawyers who've been lawyers for their entire lifetime would. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I think litigation can really be boiled down to a poker game. Um, you can have a, you can be a brilliant poker player and play a very weak hand very strongly, or yeah. you can have an extremely strong hand. And the hand really combines of two factors when it comes to litigation in music and probably any legal um, action. And it's yeah. money and it's the strength of your position. And obviously what you are doing is strengthening somebody's position provided you're able to give them a report that they want to hear. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and the reality is there's an element of money sort of, the, the 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 sheen if you like of there being money to the side that has commissioned a musicologist report as well whether or not they, they've actually got any other money to spend on it true yeah i mean it is just the first step of a very long process like i mentioned i think earlier um some of the cases that we're involved in at the moment have been going on for you know, five years and in fact i can think of at least three of them that have been going on for over five years and that is going to take its toll on on both sides of the argument a, a, a massive amount of what we have to do actually in terms of the client relationship management is manage the expectations and uh, and be really clear about that up front about what our role is what we do and we always say it's important to emphasize that our role as musicologists is to be impartial we're not here to look for a predetermined outcome or to look for evidence to support one way or the other we're here to analyze the music look for objective similarity and give a joint and independent view um, which may or may not concur with your own um, and, you know, that it's, imp it's important that they're aware of that before they engage us. So we did once have someone who got in touch and have done a lot of report, a lot of work themselves on their own, on their own concern. And uh, they said, uh, well, we just need you to produce a piece, you know, like a one side or just, you know, that just that just says that you agree with me. And, uh, you know, we quite reasonably said, well, that's not what we do. Do you, um, it didn't go down very well. <laughs> yeah, a bit awkward. Or in reality, do you ever tell clients what they don't want to hear and they then sort of throw a hissy fit and say, we'll go and see somebody else in which case? <clears throat> One time we delivered a report which wasn't well received and it was challenged and the person in particular was so emotionally connected to the, to the matter that he'd asked us to investigate. And he didn't go down well um, and he did challenge us on it, but he didn't say, well, I'm going to bring out another opinion. He actually... You know, he, he was open-minded enough to allow us to explain and walk him through. So that for us was a lesson in managing expectations in advance, not afterwards. That's the only one out of about 55 matters that we've done as Chandler and Sadell. That was, that was the only one that um, sort of stuck out. I think emotions enough. can make people do crazy things. And it's interesting what you said earlier about you know the emotional toll of bringing a case that unless you've done it as a lawyer or a claimant or defendant like people don't actually think of that as a like in my book I talk about like reasons to consider settlement and I actually put that as one of them because I'm like I've seen what it does to people it's so stressful yeah. obviously it's expensive and there's all of that but that's a really important point actually because it's about people becoming entrenched in a view and then embellishing and, and when there is a lot of emotion around again you have to remain detached from that because you can be quite close you can have quite a lot of contact if we've been engaged directly by the original author of the work and and they're the ones with the concerns it's important not to allow that contact to then potentially cloud our judgment which i'm happy to say it, it never has but it's something that you you know you need to bear in mind as well but um you know our egos are not relevant in deciding these matters it's 
it's it's the process, it's the work and the analysis, and then you know quite often we can I can get, we can get to the end of a report and I go oh uh, oh that's our conclusion because because it's just honest um, as opposed to you know just predetermining things which is not in anyone's interest. I mean I think that's a really good uh, note to end it on that um, you are, you are objective and you're un you're uncorruptible. <laughs> I wish they'd say the same for the Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe.